welcome to the Legale LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Plus Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the September 2022 Law Notes edition of the podcast, and it's an honor to once again be joined by Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legale's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the U.S. and abroad affecting LGBTQ people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month's episode will heavily feature a discussion of the updates on the Yeshiva University case among other issues affecting the transgender community. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here with you, Shane. So let's jump right in, the Yeshiva case. Had we recorded earlier this month, it would already be out of date. So I should start by mentioning, I think, today's date to today's listeners. This is being recorded on September 22nd, 2022. Please bring us up to speed with what's going on. Okay. Uh, and I, I wrote this article back in August when, the, when uh, the Yeshiva University filed an emergency application with the Supreme Court seeking a stay of Justice Cotler's order, which we, I believe, uh, addressed in a prior podcast. Uh, Justice Lynn Cotler of the uh, New York State Supreme Court in Manhattan, New York County, issued a uh, order with an injunction on June 24th telling Yeshiva University that they must immediately, she used the word immediately, extend official recognition to YU Pride Alliance, uh, an undergraduate LGBTQ student club. They refer to it as a club throughout. Uh, They wanted to form a club just like the other student clubs. And it seems there are lots of student clubs at Yeshiva University's undergraduate division. Uh, Yeshiva is a big university. They have professional schools, graduate schools. There's a rabbinical seminary that is uh, identified with Yeshiva, and that was the progenitor of Yeshiva University, but it is separately incorporated now. They're incorporated under the religious corporation law. Yeshiva is incorporated under the New York State education law. And one reason for that, presumably, is if you are incorporating under the religious corporation law, that's intended for synagogues and temples and places of worship, not for educational institutions. And uh, for not only for for synagogues and temples, but the special provision of the religious corporation law that applies to Jewish religious corporations requires them to be membership organizations that elect their rabbi, stuff like that. that just not apply, apply to Yeshiva University. Yeshiva University isn't a membership organization, and uh, the public or members don't get to elect the president of the university or whatever, uh, who happens to be a rabbi and usually is a rabbi. So Yeshiva incorporated under the uh, education law, and that was one of the main reasons why Justice Kotler ruled that they are not entitled to the religious organization exemption from compliance with the New York City Human Rights Law which forbids discrimination in public accommodations on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, among other things. So uh, Yeshiva says, we consulted with our rabbis, we agonized about this because we want to be supportive, et cetera, but we just feel that we cannot formally recognize an LGBTQ club. 
which is a bit odd because LGBTQ clubs are recognized at several of their professional and graduate schools. Uh, but those tend to operate relatively autonomously. But the university pretty much controls the undergraduate college. And uh, thousands of students enroll in several different campuses around the city. Justice Kotler, uh, on various different grounds, decided they were not qualified for the exemption that would apply to a synagogue or a temple under the uh, religious exemption in, in the law. And so she issued her order. And she issued the order in June. They immediately filed an appeal to the appellate division of her order. But at the same time, they asked for a stay while the case is pending. And they were unable to get a stay from either Justice Collier or the appellate division. The appellate division rejected their application for a stay right towards the end of August, by which time their fall semester was going to be starting soon. And they were a bit panicked. They uh, contacted the Court of Appeals and said, please take an appeal. And the Court of Appeals says, no, you got to go through regular procedures. You got to apply to the appellate division for permission to appeal to the Court of Appeals. And you didn't do that. You know, file the right papers. So they were, they were really panicking. So they filed an emergency application with Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who is the member of the Supreme Court who was assigned to hear such applications arising out of the Second Circuit. She gave them a temporary stay, and she didn't mention this in the temporary stay, but she referred the issue of the stay to the full court. Uh, so there was some surprise around that. She just said, uh, this stay is in effect until you hear further from the court. Uh, mm -hmm. So she uh, referred it to the full court, and the full court, a week later, voted five to four to dismiss the emergency application. And I think the, they, they don't explain much. Uh, they, there's a little bit of explanation in the dismissal. It's uh, a short opinion and a long dissent by Justice Alito. Uh, and the short opinion makes the point that it is procedurally improper for them to file this emergency application with the Supreme Court from a state court proceeding. From state court proceedings, you have to wait till you have a final decision by the highest appellate court of the state they can rule on it. Now, does that mean you can't appeal from a trial court? No, if the appellate division and the court of appeals on the merits had rejected Justice Cotler's ruling, then you could appeal from that. But they don't have jurisdiction, basically, under the federal jurisdictional statutes. They don't have jurisdiction to take a direct appeal from a trial court decision that hasn't gone up through the state appellate process. So they rejected it on that ground, five of the justices voted to dismiss. Four of the justices would have granted the stay. And it sounds, it's, it's sort of an implication of Justice Alito's opinion. And we will, in the October issue of One Oaks, we will have a more thorough discussion of uh, Justice Alito's uh, dissent, uh, which was joined by uh, Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Barrett. He basically said, look, those of us who are for free exercise of religion on this court I mean, this is paraphrasing, but we would, all four of us would vote to grant a petition for certiorari in this case. And furthermore, once it was before us, we would rule in favor of yeshiva most likely, which I think is pretty improper to say when you haven't had briefing and you haven't had an argument and everything to say how you would decide a case. But then of course, there is no code of ethics governing the Supreme Court. There's just what the members believe is 
within their uh, their right to do. But the, I think that was Alito going out on a limb there. But in any event, he believes that Yeshiva has a great First Amendment free exercise argument here. And we'll go into that further next month. But in the meanwhile, there's that five to four dismissal, which means that Justice Collar's order is still in effect. And it's still in effect as of today, September 22, when we're uh, recording this. Uh, however, they took an action, a very quick action. They suspended the operation of all undergraduate student clubs. And they said, we will come back and address this issue again after the holidays. And by the holidays, she means Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the succeeding. There are uh, some less significant, but still observed strictly by Orthodox Jews holidays in the weeks following. Uh, so this could stretch out a month or more before Yeshiva comes back and makes a decision. And meanwhile, all the undergraduate clubs are suspended. Now, the New York Times reported today, September 22, that the students from the Yeshiva Pride Alliance have indicated that they are willing to sit back and not do anything. So Yeshiva doesn't need to stay. They will sit back and not do anything while Yeshiva appeals to the appellate division from properly from justice on the merits from Justice Collar's order. And my understanding is that the appellate division is going to be holding a hearing either this or next month. So it's likely that uh, they will have a decision sometime soon. And looking back at Justice Collar's decision, it seems to me that it's very well reasoned. But on the other hand, I can see the possibility of the appellate division saying that this is the kind of case in which they would not focus on formalities. They would focus instead on the character of the university as a religious university that's run according to Orthodox Jewish principles. Uh, the uh, brief that was filed by Yeshiva University in support of their emergency application is devoted heavily to describing the religious character of the university and the fact that this is made clear to all applicants that the university is run along orthodox jewish lines strict kosher rules are enforced on campus they're closed during the sabbath the jewish sabbath so from sundown friday to sundown saturday the campus is closed and i can tell you uh based on my experience in new york law school on saturdays we would be flooded with cardozo law school students from Yeshiva University using our library and our study carols because their campus was closed. So they, they were pretty strict on that. And so they say, how can you say we're not a religious organization? Mm. Justice Kyler says, well, you're incorporated under the education law, not the religious corporation law. And the definition of a religious corporation under the religious corporation law would be that you provide religious services. And that you're a membership organization and that you elect your rabbi, et cetera, et cetera. That's not Yeshiva University. So, you know, she's got, I think it's a very, very well-reasoned argument why technically they're not covered. They would be considered a distinctly private organization under the exemption section of the religious court of the uh, New York City Human Rights Law. But uh, the appellate division might be persuaded by the same sorts of arguments that they made to the Supreme Court that they are really at heart a religious organization. They're the leading Orthodox university in the United States. So, you know, here is the clash. And if the clash gets to the Supreme Court sometime, we know that uh, over the past few years, there has been a very strong majority on the Supreme Court for free exercise of religion. Someone who's asserting a free exercise claim almost invariably wins before the Supreme Court. So ultimately that may be how it turns out. 
but we don't know. The Supreme Court could surprise us. I'm sure there were people surprised by this 5-4 dismissal. But if you read it, you see what they're concerned about. And it, it basically turned on Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh joining with the three Democratic appointees. And they are really sticklers for procedure. Mm. You look back, for example, Roberts' dissenting opinion in the Windsor case. He was very, very concerned about procedure. And why is this case in front of us? They won in the Second Circuit. Why is this case in front of us? You know, all that sort of stuff. So uh, that's where we are with Yeshiva University. That's when we'll be, we'll be watching carefully. And uh, the October issue of Law Notes will have updates. And we would probably probably have more to uh, to report by then, uh, especially if we get a decision from the appellate division. Although that may take a little longer. So that's where we are in Yeshiva right now. Well, thank you for, again, that summary. I know we discussed in more detail in a prior podcast, so listeners can always go back if they want to hear more in depth about the initial opinion. And, and thank you for following all these updates so closely. This really has been a moving target in terms of day by day, what the discussion would have looked like this month around the case. And people getting the September law notes, which should be coming out shortly after we finish recording the podcast, We'll note that the Yeshiva article has been updated with little parentheticals to indicate what happened after the end of August. Fantastic. So shifting gears a little bit, there were a couple of exciting transgender firsts, so to speak, in the past month. Could you take us through Williams versus Kincaid? Okay, Williams versus Kincaid is a very important decision from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals issued on August 16th deciding several, at least two significant issues that is probably a first at the appellate level. And we've had some district courts uh, taking a stab at, at these issues. And the problem here is the, the plaintiff is a transgender person who was an inmate uh, in a Virginia jail for six months in Fairfax County in 2018, 2019. She had been living as a woman for a long time, she was taking hormones. She had not had uh, uh, transitional surgery, however. And she came into the prison presenting as a woman, dressed as a woman, looks like a woman. Uh, they initially assigned her to the women's section in the jail. Uh, but then during an intake uh, physical, she said, well, I am a transgender woman. And it, it turned out that she has male genitals. And under the strict rules that they were following at this jail, if you have male genitals, you're sent to the men's section. Even though you dress as a woman and groom as a woman, you're sent to the men's section where she experienced harassment and assault and things of that sort. Ultimately, she filed suit, uh, raising various claims uh, under the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And uh, she claimed that she was being discriminated against based on a disability, gender dysphoria. Uh, she also uh, pointed out that the Prison Rape Elimination Act, called PREA, P-R-E-A, requires a case-by-case -case determination of housing assignments for transgender inmates based on threats to their safety. She said, this jail has a categorical rule uh, just based on your genitals. Uh, they're not doing a case-by-case -case analysis, so they're violating PREA. The problem is uh, most courts agree that there is no private right of action under PREA. But, she said, I'm also suing for uh, negligence, gross negligence, under Virginia tort law against the jail, that it was grossly negligent 
to send me into the men's section and to not protect me from uh, harassment and assault and being misgendered and all that sort of thing. And under Virginia tort law, I'm going to say that PREA sets a standard for negligence. That because of, they can't claim that they weren't on notice, that they have an obligation to do a case-by-case -case determination where to house a transgender prisoner. They can't have a categorical rule. And therefore, it's grossly negligent to put me in the male housing and to expose me to that harassment. All right, the trial judge, who uh, is a senior U.S. district judge, Claude M. Hill, who was appointed by Ronald Reagan, he took a look at this and he said, well, as I read the ADA, gender dysphoria is excluded from being a disability under a provision we'll be talking about shortly. Uh, and so you can't uh, sue under the ADA. You can't sue under the Rehabilitation Act, which has the same definition. And as far as Virginia tort law, since I'm dismissing your federal claims, I'm not even going to have to rule on that because that's, you know, a federal court would only have jurisdiction under of a state law claim if there's a federal law basis for the court to have jurisdiction over the case. So Hilton just dismissed it uh, and it went up to the Fourth Circuit. And the Fourth Circuit has been extraordinarily good on transgender issues. Dating back to the Gavin Grimm case, uh, a transgender boy who was denied access to uh, the facilities in, in his school on the grounds that he was uh, transgender and therefore was a girl and couldn't have access to the boys' locker room or the boys' restroom or any of that. And uh, that litigation went up to the Fourth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit said that violates his equal protection rights and it violates his rights under uh, Title IX, which forbids sex discrimination in educational institutions to get federal money. And the, that Gavin Grimm decision is important because it predates the Bostock decision. So the Fourth Circuit was out in front there and saying that uh, transgender discrimination is a form of sex discrimination covered by Title IX and under equal protection gets heightened scrutiny. Uh, so we have that precedent in the Fourth Circuit. So we go up here in this case, and uh, the uh, this is the lead article, actually, in the uh, September issue of Law Notes, uh, because it's such a big breakthrough on transgender law. And back when the Americans with Disabilities Act was being considered by Congress in 1990, there were two senators in particular that were crusading to be sure that the Americans with Disabilities Act couldn't be used as a gay rights or transgender rights law. And they managed to get an amendment saying that homosexuality and bisexuality shall not be considered a disability. And that was fine with gay rights groups because we don't consider it to be a disability. But as far as transgender, now the term transgender as of 1990 wasn't necessarily in general use. And certainly the term gender dysphoria wasn't in general use back then. The terms that we use were transsexualism, transvestism, and the word, the phrase that was used in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association was gender identity disorder. So they managed to get this amendment to be included with the definition of a disability under the ADA. It said uh, that excluded from the definition of a disability is a gender identity disorder not resulting from physical impairment. And the same uh, section excludes transvestism, transsexualism, pedophilia, exhibitionism, voyeurism, other sexual behavior disorders, 
compulsive gambling, kleptomania, pyromania, or psychoactive substance use disorders resulting from current illegal use of drugs. They were all lumped together because these were all things that they believed might plausibly claim to be covered by the definition of a disability under the ADA. And they didn't want this to be an anti-discrimination law for transsexuals, among other things. Okay. And since then, most courts have said that you, you are not covered if, if you are transgender uh, from discrimination based on that because of this exclusionary language. But the word gender dysphoria doesn't appear there. Is that significant? Well, the Fourth Circuit, in line with a handful of district courts around the country, the Fourth Circuit said that's very significant because gender dysphoria is a new term adopted by the American Psychiatric Association in a subsequent edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM. It's a new diagnosis for which there is a treatment. That is, gender transition is a treatment for severe gender dysphoria. Not all people who identify as transgender desire to go through with surgery or even hormone treatment. And if you're seeking treatment for something, well, is it possible that you're uh, that it's it's a disorder that's resulting from a physical impairment for which you're seeking treatment? Or is it possible that gender dysphoria is distinguished and is different from gender identity disorder, which was the term used in the prior edition of DSM? And if so, and if we're supposed to interpret based on the language used by Congress when it adopted the statute, then gender dysphoria is not on the list of exclusions. I mean, they excluded gender identity disorder. They excluded transvestism, transsexualism, but they didn't exclude gender dysphoria. And the comeback to that by the dissenting judge here, Judge Quattlebaum, says, well, they didn't exclude gender dysphoria because no one had heard of it. It's a term that was made up later on. And he, he says, this is just linguistic drift, that's all. It's the same thing. He says gender dysphoria was always included within gender identity disorders. But uh, the majority said, no, this is new. This is distinctly different. And because there is a treatment for it, we also think that it has a physical basis. And you, know, you go in and you get hormone therapy. If, if you're pre-pubic, you get uh, puberty blockers. You know, there, there are treatments that go along with this. And so we're gonna say that either, there are two arguments here and we accept both of them in the alternative. The first is strict reading of the language, gender identity disorder doesn't mean gender dysphoria. There are many different things that might relate to gender identity uh, disorder, but gender identity disorder isn't even an official diagnosis anymore. It's been replaced by something else which is defined differently. And therefore we're gonna say it's not part of the exclusion. And uh, we're also going to say that uh, because severe gender identity disorder can interfere with someone's life functions because of its impact on them, it will probably qualify as a disability under the ADA, if not as an actual impairment, uh, as being regarded as having an impairment, which is uh, part of the three-pronged definition under the ADA, regarded by others as having uh, an impairment. And because there are treatments for it, because there are medications that are used, because gender transition, there's surgery, there's all sorts of things, we're going to say that if we're going to consider it uh, as a, a disorder, we'll say it's resulting from a physical impairment. So it's not excluded 
as a disability. So uh, she could sue on that basis. And as to the gross negligence, we're going to say, well, the prison, the uh, Prison Rape Elimination Act spells it out very clearly. And the regulations under that act spell it out even more clearly that you can't discriminate on that basis when you're dealing with issues of safety in a prison. The Prison Rape Elimination Act was supposed to create safe conditions for people by listing various things that prisons are supposed to do to ensure the safety of people who would be vulnerable to sexual assault in the prison. That's its aim. And one of the things was that in housing a prisoner, you have to do a case-by-case -case analysis of their potential risk of being assaulted, depending where you place them in the prison and what you do to safeguard them. And therefore, her gross negligence claim, now that we're reviving her federal claim, certainly the court, uh, when we send it back to the trial court, will have jurisdiction under the Virginia tort claim as well as a supplemental claim. And the standard set by Priya is pretty clear. It seems on its face here that it's grossly negligent just to categorically send uh, transgender women into a men's prison or men's housing in a jail based solely on the fact that she hasn't had surgery. And so she still has a, a penis and therefore she's gonna be with the men. That's not taking into account the danger that she would face in that situation. And transgender women are at high, high risk of sexual assault in prisons. So uh, the case has been revived. Uh, luckily she's not in prison now. I mean, she, she sued after she got out. So uh, the Prison Litigation Reform Act doesn't apply which is a good thing. That's a relief uh, to hear that she's safe now. And also, you know, if, if the, uh, because the suit is against individuals, the warden and the nurse and the uh, corrections officer, the nurse was the one who reclassified her and shifted her from the women's to the men's after discovering she had a penis and the uh, correction officer failed to protect her. And so uh, they were gonna claim immunity a qualified immunity on the grounds that it wasn't clear uh, that they, they were violating constitutional rights here. And uh, that may be a problem in the Fourth Circuit for them. We'll see. There was also a, uh, a statute of limitations claim that was raised because the initial complaint didn't identify the defendants by name, just referred to them as, as John Doe and Jane Doe. And an amended complaint named them. But the amended complaint was filed uh, more than two years after the incidents uh, giving rise to the case and the Virginia statute of limitations on tort is two years. And so the uh, trial judge also said it might be barred by the statute of limitations. But uh, they said, no, once you file the John Doe and everyone knows who you're talking about connected with the case, it relates back when you file the names because you didn't discover the names until later on. So that's taking care of the statute of limitations issue as well. Uh, but this is this is really a breakthrough. If if we have ADA protection for people with gender dysphoria under the Americans with Disabilities Act, this isn't just prisons. The Americans with Disabilities Act applies broadly throughout society to places of public accommodation, which is something we don't have. On, I mean, Title VII only applies to employment. Uh, we don't have protection under federal law for public accommodations on the basis of sex. Because when uh, the Civil Rights Act was pending, the floor amendment to add sex under Title VII 
only applied to Title VII, and the public accommodations and public service sections of the Civil Rights Act were not amended to add sex. So the Equality Act, which is now pending in Congress, almost all of it uh, addresses sexual orientation and gender identity, but one provision of it addresses the lack of coverage for sex under the public accommodations and public service provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 64. Uh, and that is a very important uh, amendment that we need as part of the Equality Act. Another reason why it's so important. It's frustrating to see that bill stall. Definitely. Well, thank you for bringing us some good news. That's always appreciated on the podcast. Well, and our first case was good news because Yeshiva didn't get their stay. That's good news. That's true. That's true. This is a much more uplifting podcast than some of the prior episodes this summer. Yes. And the next case, too. That's a perfect segue. Let's jump into what's going on with the Eighth Circuit. Okay. The Eighth Circuit, one of the most conservative circuits, one of the most Republican circuits in terms of the presidents who appointed the judges. At the present time, there is only one Democratic appointee who is an active Eighth Circuit judge. And she is the author of the opinion we're going to talk about now, Jane Kelly, who was uh, appointed by President Obama. A three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit unanimously affirmed a preliminary injunction issued by U.S. District Judge James Moody Jr. last summer blocking the Arkansas Act 626, which is titled Arkansas Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act, or the SAFE Act. And uh, what the SAFE Act does, and it was the first state law on this subject to be passed, it was enacted over the veto of the governor by a huge Republican majority in the state legislature in Arkansas. It basically says doctors in this state are prohibited from providing gender transition procedures to minors. This is the first of the state. There are several others now, and they're being litigated around the country. But in this one, Judge Moody, uh, who was also appointed by President Obama, issued a, a preliminary injunction upon the filing of this challenge. And he, he had detailed findings of fact going into this and accepted a lot of expert uh, evidence that was uh, given in amicus briefs in this case. And normally on a preliminary injunction, you know, you don't have a lot of litigation and stuff. It's just based on what's in, in, the, uh, in the complaint. But he went to town in terms of factual findings and he found that it would cause irreparable injury the transgender kids in Arkansas who were receiving treatment and would have it suddenly suspended, would have to go out of state. He said, you know, suspension of, uh, of hormones or puberty blockers could mean that you're going to go through puberty in the gender with which you don't identify. And there are certain things that are kind of irreversible on that, which means, you know, you'd have to have surgery, whereas you wouldn't have to have surgery, for example, uh, if you were a transgender woman. Uh, if you have puberty blockers, you're not going to have to have top surgery because you're not going to go through puberty. Not, not much you can do about a penis in terms of going the other direction. Uh, but uh, the point is that there are irreparable injuries here, uh, which is something that you need uh, in order to get a preliminary injunction. Another thing you need is a likelihood of success on the merits. And on the merits, the court said, well, let's look at the Bostock decision said Judge Moody. Let's look at the Bostock decision. The Bostock decision says that discriminating on basis of transgender status is sex discrimination. 
And I'm going to take that and I'm going to use it for my equal protection analysis in this case and say, if this is sex discrimination, if you are discriminating against transgender people, because other people, every procedure, every medication, every drug that's involved here has multiple uses for many different kinds of conditions. And you're saying because of this particular condition, their transgender status, they can't have it. Well, that's discrimination based on gender identity, and that gets heightened scrutiny. So let's see what the state's rationale is for, because they have to have a really good justification with heightened scrutiny to discriminate based on gender identity. And they're saying the purpose of this is twofold. It's to protect people from experimental treatments that could be dangerous to them. And it's to police the ethics of doctors, because doctors are not supposed to perform experimental you know, things that haven't been approved by you know the FDA or whatever. And, and by the way, the use of these various medications uh, that are associated with gender affirmation, gender transition, is off-label use. That is, when these drugs were first approved by the FDA, this wasn't contemplated as one of the uses. In fact, the approval of many of these drugs predates the whole idea of gender transition. Uh, it's off-label use, but doctors routinely do off-label use for uh, treatments that have been over time accepted as part of the standard of care for particular conditions or illnesses or uh, disorders. So uh, the fact that it's off-label use doesn't make it illegal, is what I'm saying. Uh, but they say, well, we have to we have to protect these kids from uh, dangerous experimental drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And Judge Moody said, well, based on the uh, evidence presented to me, the medical profession has reached a consensus that this isn't dangerous, that it is appropriate, it's efficacious for dealing with gender dysphoria in minors. And uh, it's not unethical for doctors to do it when their professional association says it's an appropriate treatment. So he says, I don't see that the state has met heightened scrutiny here. I think that there's a high likelihood of success on the merits for the plaintiff in this case, uh, who is uh, suing uh, in their own name. So this is a you know interesting case. Uh, the Court of Appeals affirmed. Uh, judge Kelly found that all the requirements were met. It's three judge panel. Now the second judge on the panel is a district judge from Minnesota who was sitting by designation to uh, those of our listeners who aren't familiar with uh, the federal court system and federal litigation. The courts of appeals are really shorthanded. Congress hasn't created a lot of additional court of appeals judges, even as the population of the country has increased and the volume of cases has increased. And so they're shorthanded. So it has become customary and it's, it's a longstanding practice for uh, senior judges, for example, who are retired from full-time service to go around the country and to sit, you know, uh, they, they apply to whatever circuit they'd like to sit with. And uh, every circuit is pretty shorthanded. So they usually are welcome to come and sit on cases and they have a full vote and everything. The only thing they can't do is they can't uh, participate in an on-bank. Uh, only the active judges can do that. And then district judges, district judges can also sit by designation. And sometimes the court is very shorthanded. And so they, uh, they, there was a new federal district judge who had just been appointed recently by President Biden and uh, Catherine Menendez of the U.S. District Court of Minnesota. Uh, so one member of the panel was a Biden appointee. 
And we don't have many Court of Appeals judges, although we, we have some, but no Court of Appeals judges in the Eighth Circuit yet. So uh, she was on this panel. And the third judge on the panel was James Loken, who was appointed by President George H.W. Bush in 1990 and is a former chief judge of the circuit. Uh, so that's the three-judge panel, and they were unanimous. There was no dissent. There were also no Trump appointees and no George W. Bush appointees on this panel, but they dominate the court. In fact, of active judges on the court, there's only Judge Kelly, who's a Democratic appointee by uh, President Obama, who only got one appointment on the Eighth Circuit. Uh, the Clinton judges are all gone. The uh, So it's all George W. Bush and, and Trump judges. And that's why I think this may be a temporary victory. Uh, it's an important victory. Uh, it's just upholding a preliminary injunction. It's not a final ruling on the merits. But both the, the uh, trial judge decision and the Court of Appeals uh, panel decision makes it sound like it's a slam dunk on the merits. But let's see what happens when uh, the uh, attorney general of uh, the state of Arkansas, Leslie Rutledge, who is the named lead defendant, said she's going to immediately seek on bank review. Uh, the chances that this will be reversed on bank, I would say, are extremely high, not least because this was an unusual panel that is not representative of the circuit. It's a panel with two Democratic appointees. And of all the active judges on the circuit, you couldn't put together a panel with two Democratic appointees. In fact, you couldn't even put a, a panel together uh, with the senior judges. There are a handful of senior judges. They're all Republican appointees, too. Uh, all the Democratic uh, appointees uh, are long since gone, retired, or uh, died out. I think we're, we're in for a reversal. And then the big question will be, do you bring it to the Supreme Court? Do you want to ask the Supreme Court at this point whether uh, a state can outlaw gender transition procedures for minors? It's a strategic question. Is it premature to bring it to the Supreme Court? Should we build, be building up more precedents in the lower courts first? Because it will be up to our side if we are the losers on the on bank as to whether to petition the Supreme Court. Big strategic question for, uh, for the counsel in this case. And the counsel in this case, I believe, uh, is the ACLU. Yes, lead attorney for the plaintiffs is Chase Strangio of the ACLU, the, one of the leading transgender rights lawyers in the country. Uh, and he said to the Associated Press, responding to this panel decision, the A Circuit was abundantly clear that the state's ban on care does not advance any important government interest, and the state's defense of the law is lacking in legal or evidentiary support. The state has no business categorically singling out this care for prohibition. Well, sounds good. Let's see what happens if it goes on bank. And I would be very surprised if on bank review is not granted in this case. So we've seen a lot of states this year attempt to outlaw gender affirming care for transgender youth. I wanted to take a minute to talk about what I think might be the first federal attempt to try to outlaw gender affirming health care for transgender and non-binary youth. We saw last month a bill submitted by Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, I believe, and it is called the Protect Children's Innocence Act. And if this act were ever to become law, this would make it a felony to perform any gender affirming care on a minor and would permit the minor on whom such care is performed to bring a civil action against each individual who provided the care. So this would not only block 
gender affirming health care for a minor, but also use of federal funds for health insurance covering such care. And it is noteworthy that this bill would not apply to stopping interventions against intersex youth who may or may not later identify as transgender. And uh, one could right off the bat question the jurisdiction of Congress to legislate on this, but of course. Yeah. We'll see, but uh, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? It's not going to go anywhere. This year, but, you know, just I, I don't think we can totally write it off in the sense um, that... If the House and the Senate go Republican, all bets are off in Congress, but we still have the veto and that they're not going to have enough uh, of a margin to override a veto. But, uh, you know, looking two years down the line, who knows what happens. Uh, but uh, we're we're hopeful and I guess... Uh, the gal in Law Notes doesn't endorse political candidates. We just endorse judicial candidates. But I think that uh, we can say that for purposes of LGBT law, it would be a good thing if the Senate at least stayed in Democratic hands for the next two years. In terms of confirming judges that President Biden would be able to appoint for his the second half of his first term. You know, whether or not this bill ultimately passes within this session or something similar a few years down the road, I think it's worth reflecting on the that this bill is representative of the rising hateful rhetoric and attacks against our youth on a nationwide level. Uh, and that's the, I think that's honestly the thing that gives me the biggest pause rather than losing sleep at night. Is this going to become law over the next year? Yeah, although we do have equal protection there. Uh, although how the equal protection arguments for transgender rights would hold up in the Supreme Court is anyone's guess. Of course. Thank you so much that we've had mostly good news this month. I know a lot of these cases are to be continued and that's okay. We're going to continue to keep our listeners informed on all the latest updates as we have done for decades now. Do you have anything of note to share with us before we close out this month's law notes? Yeah, I figured uh, along the lines of how wonderful it is to have some victories to report, there's a trial court victory to report. On August 3, U.S. District Judge Catherine Blake in the District Court in Maryland granted a motion for summary judgment uh, on behalf of a gay man, a John Doe, assuming he's a John Doe, uh, who is employed by Catholic Relief Services in Maryland as a data analyst. He's, he's uh, not employed in a religious capacity at all. He's a data analyst. He was hired as a result of a job fair he went to. There were openings, and he talked with the interviewer, and he said, uh, does the insurance plan cover uh, spouses? And I said, yes. He said, will it, will it cover my husband? And the recruiter said, yes. So he goes to work for them. And they, he puts his husband on the health plan and it, everything went through fine. And then all of a sudden someone woke up at Catholic Relief Services in their human resources department and said, hey, just a minute, the spouse on this is the same gender as the employee. We don't do that. We're a Catholic agency. And they informed him that they were going to boot his husband off the health plan. And he sued. And he won from uh, Catherine Blake. Who, who said, no, 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 uh, this, is, uh, this, this violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 under Bostock, and potentially the Federal Equal Pay Act as well, and Maryland's Equal Pay Law. The uh, Catholic Relief Services says, oh, we have a First Amendment right to do this. And uh, 
Justice uh, Blake, to paraphrase, is the hell you do. <laughs> I'm ruling for the plaintiff here. Uh, we'll see if they if they appeal this, uh, but uh, this would be in Maryland. Uh, so go to the Fourth Circuit, and we know what the Fourth Circuit thinks about some of these things. So we'll see. But it's nice to report a victory at this point. Uh, we have full details. One of uh, one of my students here at New York Law School, who is our contributing writer on this, Ashton Hesse, did a terrific job of giving you all the details on this case. But uh, the key thing really is Title VII because Title VII applies. Uh, this is an employer covered by Title VII. Title VII applies to discrimination with respect to compensation and benefits. And health insurance is a benefit that's covered by Title VII. And there is case law, dates back to the 1990s at least, uh, actually even further back, uh, saying that if you discriminate with respect to a spouse of an employee, that could violate Title VII as well. That spousal coverage uh, is uh, subject to the uh, equal treatment requirement under Title VII. And that was an abortion case, by the way. Hmm. No, that was pregnancy cases, not abortion cases, pregnancy cases. The Supreme Court uh, took the, uh, on its face, religious, uh, ridiculous position that not covering pregnancy under an employee health plan discriminates against women. The Supreme Court said, no, it doesn't discriminate against women. It discriminates against pregnant women. Not all women get pregnant. Therefore, it's not sex discrimination. Congress said, you got to be crazy. And they passed an amendment to Title VII called the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. And they said, discrimination against people because of pregnancy or conditions associated with pregnancy is sex discrimination for purposes of the statute. Uh, and then a case came up where the employer said, okay, we'll cover pregnancy for employees, but not for spouses. And of course, well, that's discriminating against the husbands. That's giving them lesser benefits. So that, that violates too. And so this court took that same principle and said, well, that's discrimination here. Uh, and uh, what's at stake here? Well, the husband put off expensive dental work because he was not covered. And uh, so he's gonna want some damages there, uh, substantial damages. If, if uh, Catholic Relief Services decides this is a culture wars case, they're gonna appeal it. Maybe they'll just settle because how many how many employees would how many additional people will be added on their insurance policies as a result of this decision? Probably not a whole lot. And most studies have said that adding same-sex spouses doesn't substantially increase the cost of providing health insurance to employees. Makes sense. Yeah. The numbers are too small to move the needle very far on uh, the net cost to the employer in terms of premium for coverage. Certainly sounds cheaper than litigation. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if, if when you lose the litigation under a civil rights case, that, that there's attorney's fees to be awarded to the prevailing plaintiff too. Well, Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you as always to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.